Welcome to Animals Today, your home for series talk about animals. I'm Dr. Lori Kirshner. Peter, why don't you tell us about what probably is the biggest animal story of the week? Yeah, I think so. And that is the first pig to human heart transplant. Yep. Everyone's talking about that. This is a culmination of decades of medical research. And here's a couple of the highlights you may be familiar with. The recipient, his name is David Bennett. He is 57. This happened at the University of Maryland. And essentially a heart from a pig that has been uh, highly genetically modified over many years of research was uh, transplanted into this recipient who had end-stage heart disease, obviously. And he is still alive after more than a week, right? So how did this uh, come to pass and uh, where do we go from here? Those are the sort of questions people are asking, the ethics surrounding this. And I wanted to just give you a couple more uh, details. The company that produced this heart and the pigs that uh, they are derived from is called Revivacor. And this company has been working on this for a couple of decades, like I mentioned. And thanks to CRISPR genome editing technology, which is truly a miraculous thing, they have been able to make the hearts less susceptible to being rejected by the human immune system by taking out some genes that the pig naturally has and inserting some human genes into the heart so that it doesn't get uh, rejected. And that is really, as far as medical stuff goes, that's quite an achievement. Consequently, this might be the next wave of medical treatment. It's very, very expensive and uh, it's certainly experimental. This particular case came down to emergency authorization from the FDA. They really wanted the hospital to do like 10 cases where the heart was transplanted into baboons, which is his own issue. But this gentleman appeared and they made a special request and he needed it because he was not eligible to have a conventional human heart transplant. More on that in a second. Anyway, it happened, and it's called a xenotransplant from uh, across species from an animal to a human. And everyone is uh, talking about it, the bioethicists, the medical ethicists, the animal welfare folks, the surgeons. Everyone's uh, very interested in this and uh, developing their uh, opinions. So a couple of things to consider. One, of course, is the cruelty to the animals involved both in the research and the ones that are ultimately going to be sacrificed. You can imagine a time in the future where farms of Frankenstein animals are created just to create organs for people, and that's not very nice, right? So big ethical concerns about that that we have too. Second is the risks to the world as far as introducing viruses and pathogens uh, that originally are harbored in animals and now are possibly ending up in people to be transmitted. We all are worried and concerned about zoonotic or zoonotic infections now. And so is this going to be a whole new way of that happening? Nobody really knows. And who do you trust anyway? This particular recipient, right? A lot of people are talking about him. He is no Boy Scout. He actually is a convicted felon, spent years in prison for uh, attacking and harming someone with a knife. 
Details uh, not clear. The person ultimately died years later, and uh, he served his time, and then he's out in society. But uh, is he the finest or the best person to receive this special heart and save his life? A lot of people don't want to touch that. The hospital and the medical ethicists, their perspective on that is that, oh, we only look at the medical records and the history of the individual is not important to us. We don't even care. We only see illness and we want to treat it. And this person needed our care, something like that. And my opinion, well, my opinion doesn't matter, but to me, it seems funny at best. Another thing that comes up is, is if this is going to be a common future treatment, it's going to suck up so many other resources. This is super expensive. And why not advocate preventive medicine, healthy lifestyles, or less expensive treatments that can be given to hundreds of thousands of people, except for the fortunate few at maybe a million or half a million dollars a shot. So allocation of resources, uh, you know, they're not unlimited. And so those are some of the issues that uh, people are uh, are talking about. Oh, and Lurie, and there's one more thing about this recipient, um, Mr. Bennett. He was not eligible for a regular uh, transplant because he was non-compliant. He hadn't taken his medicines properly, and he was just a bad patient. He was a bad candidate, so they didn't want to put him on the regular transplant list. So look where we are. It's just crazy, in my opinion. So that's what's happening. That's what everyone's talking about. Peter, you laid out the story and the elements of the story and the things to think about so well. Thank yeah. you so okay. much. Okay. It's been reported that the pig heart recipient, this felon is doing well and just passed his two-week post-transplant milestone. Yeah, and cardiovascularly, he continues to improve. Okay, I do want to talk just a little bit about the ethics of the story, but first I want to ask you, did you hear about this? The University of Alabama at Birmingham reported that they had, for the first time, successfully transplanted kidneys from a genetically modified pig into the abdomen of a 57-year-old brain-dead man? Yeah, I heard about that. And so that was like preceding this. Yes. That was just, and that was just published. And that is another example of, of using this. And they utilized the body of a person who is brain dead, but being held on life support and to prove the point that you can make this transplant, I guess. So do you think in hospitals currently, they're asking patients, families whose father or mother or loved one is in the hospital and they're cognitively not all there and they're asking if they want to... You mean even before brain dead, just like, ah, oh, <laughs> like a Saturday Night Live, <laughs> to the mercy killers. Okay. No, I don't know what kind of protocol okay. they had at this particular hospital, yeah. but it's a strange new world. Yeah, I mean, it, it, all these things are weird. Okay, let's talk about the ethics of the first heart transplant from a genetically modified pig to this guy. Yeah. So the term, as you mentioned, xenotransplantation, xenotransplantation refers to organ transplant between species. And of course, there can be an entire discussion related to the ethics of genetic modifications of animals for this purpose, as you laid out. But now there is this other ethical question, concern, discussion surrounding the recipient of the organ. I read, Peter, that about 3,500 people in the United States are waiting for a heart, and many will wait more than six months. But some will die before a heart becomes available to them. In this case, like you mentioned, the recipient was 57-year-old man David Bennett, and he ended up with heart failure. And... 
was not eligible for a conventional heart transplant. I wasn't sure why, but you you told us why, which yeah. is very interesting to learn. He was non-compliant with his medications yeah. and not a good patient. Yeah. But this guy, Bennett, was convicted of stabbing a man. That man was called Edward Shoemaker. And leaving him paralyzed in a wheelchair. Yeah. I have no idea what the criteria are for eligibility for a transplant. I'm sure they're based on medical factors. And I have no idea if an ethical process is in place for deciding how to allocate organs once they become available. Mm-hmm. Guidance from the U.S. Organ Transplantation Network says that, quote, status as a prisoner, I know this guy wasn't a prisoner, but status as a prisoner should not preclude someone from consideration for a transplant Now, applicable to Bennett's case, one can argue that he served his sentence in jail and now he's deserving of the same rights, medical rights, as everyone else, right? Right. This is from the Washington Post. A statement from the sister, I believe, of the victim says, Ed suffered the devastation and the trauma for years and years that my family had to deal with. I wish, in my opinion, it had gone to a deserving recipient. So she's... Yeah. Characterizing this guy as yeah. not a deserving recipient. Yeah. More from the Washington Post. More than 106,000 Americans are on the national waiting list for an organ transplant, and 17 people die each day, never receiving the organ they need. In the face of such a shortage, it can seem unconscionable to some families that those convicted of violent crimes would be given a life-saving procedure so many desperately need. Yes. What do you think? I just think it's just bizarre that the hospitals and the medical ethicists and this guy, you know, this celebrity ethicist, Arthur Kaplan from NYU, he, you know, that's his take also. He's like, oh, we're blind. You know, they really turn a blind eye. Like they're just like, oh, we going to ignore or just keep us in the dark about everything else. We're just going to go on the straight and narrow. And it's just not realistic. I mean, it's just crazy. Right. So this is the basic ethical question here. Give the heart to your law-abiding brother waiting for a heart transplant, and we know they're in short supply, so without one, he'll likely die soon, or a felon, convicted felon, who stabs a man, leaving him paralyzed for the remainder of his life. So essentially, saving this guy's life, the this same guy who took the life of another. Yeah, well. You know, there is a thing called the Hippocratic Oath that you and I took. Remember? I remember. You know, I remember during my medical training, Peter, one of the nearby county hospitals, we had to treat convicts. Yes. In fact, in one of my clinics, there was a particular day of the week in which we would expect individuals from the nearby jail to be escorted by their guards and they would be in handcuffs. And we were not usually told what they did or why they were incarcerated. But on one occasion, I remember the guards cautioned me and took me aside and said that this person you're about to examine is extremely dangerous and to stay at least four feet away from him. I said, that's going to be a little difficult if I have to examine the guy and make body contact with the guy. The entire time, my heart is racing, as you can imagine. I'm thinking this guy's probably a psychopathic serial killer, and he could easily wrap his handcuffs around my neck and choke me to death before anyone could stop him. Peter, what do you know about cross-species organ transplantation, and specifically the practice of transplanting organs from pigs to non-human primates like chimps or baboons? Yeah. 
not to help primates who are in heart failure, that's for sure. Right, right? exactly. So, so this is a, a is research, a precursor to what we're seeing now. Right, instead of experimenting on one animal, you experiment on two. Oh, oh that's the other thing. Um, it involves that's another two, ethical, two animals. Right, that's right? a double, double ethical. Oh, yeah, but yeah, that's, how, that's their stepping stone. And ultimately, as in this case, they reached the limits of the knowledge and the limits of what you can understand in the pig baboon interaction so ultimately you need to now learn what you can on people if this is where it's going to go okay well that was quite interesting thanks peter okay we'll see what what happens hopefully uh well we'll see what happens with this one we'll give us an update i'm sure yes okay don't go away more with the show right after the break Welcome back. Okay, Lori, a couple of hot ones from around the world. This one in Pennsylvania. You may have seen this, a pickup truck hauling a trailer filled with a hundred monkeys destined for research. Yeah. These were macaque monkeys. Yeah. It got into an accident and was hit by a dump truck and spilled these uh, monkeys onto the freezing ground. Oh and they had to hunt down some hunt that's not the right word they had to capture these poor creatures three of them ultimately were euthanized we don't know why but one woman who came upon this scene got close to one of the cages was greeted by the monkey poked your finger into the little cage the monkey popped up and the woman reports that she got a face full of respiratory droplets from this monkey and you would think oh a cute little monkey but no the monkeys carry herpes you they carry potentially rabies and so when the woman developed conjunctivitis and recognizing that she also had had an open wound she brought herself to the emergency room and had to be uh, you know treated with antivirals and start a rabies protocol oh my and, god which we talked about and so it so it's just infuriating how can it possibly how can you let a guy in a pickup truck pull a trailer filled with a hundred monkeys and not be escorted or get lost? How did this happen? I mean, it just seems so irresponsible, uh, even though they're only lab monkeys and they're going to go from one facility to another. I mean, this is precious and expensive cargo. It's just a disaster. That you can imagine happen. the cruelty involved. I mean, the mon- just- if a hundred monkeys are stuffed in one truck, how are they transported, you know? Just a complete disaster. You know, you see these convoys on the road, like they can be driving like a big load or moving a prefab home, and you've got a guide in front and a guide in back, and you've got the wide load, and the thing is escorted. I mean, you just don't give a guy in a pickup truck with no escort. It's It's, crazy. It's crazy. Anyway, we hope this woman is okay. Obviously, she was concerned about the animals and uh, uh, the monkey's okay. They won't have such a a good fate, but what do you do? Except three. Three were euthanized. Yeah. Maybe those are in better... Maybe those are the lucky ones. Yeah, exactly. I know. Okay, so you know about cultured meat, lab-grown meat. This is a potentially growing segment. And basically... You start with the muscle cells of your animal that you want to grow, and in a lab, they are uh, propagated and then processed somehow to create something that is somewhat palatable to people who to eat it. Purportedly, this offers uh, 
promises of increased sustainability compared to conventional meat because it requires less water and less other, less fertilizer. You know, the whole thing is, is cleaner than raising a whole animal. However, research just released revealed that people feel a little disgusted about the idea of eating cultured meat. And uh, 35% of meat eaters and 55% of vegetarians find cultured meat a little too disgusting to eat. So the meat eaters who can eat animals find this more disgusting than eating the animals? Well, yeah, they're meat eaters. So a meat eater and 35% of them did not like the idea of the cultured meat. Okay. And uh, vegetarians who perhaps some of them would lust for meat, you know, maybe they don't want to eat it, but they wish they could. A lot of them will have this barrier because somehow they find it a little bit repulsive. So there are things that the industry needs to overcome yeah. uh, on both sides. Yeah. So would you want to taste that? No. No, no. 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 Vegetables. <laughs> we like our vegetables. That's right. Okay. Norway bans breeding of a couple of breeds of dogs. Mm. The Cavalier King Charles Spaniel, I've seen them on TV, and Bulldogs, their breeding is going to be highly restricted. In fact, they're not going to be able to be bred to create more of that same breed because the country has ruled that it is inherently cruel to be one of these animals because you were born with health problems, breathing problems, uh, problems even in being born because of the size of the animal. And uh, there are other genetic defects that these breeds propagate. And so there's this new ruling uh, that really is going to limit the breeding of these animals, which is fascinating that they uh, took this on, in, in my opinion. And I know that, Laura, you've got something to say about the problems with uh, genetic uh, diseases in uh, purebred animals, don't you? Yes, I do. <laughs> okay. So stay tuned for that, <laughs> okay. especially when these breeders overbreed them like they are. Yeah. One of my happy places, you know what that is? It's called Lowe's, also Home Depot. But <laughs> Lowe's, I like. I just feel relaxed when I walk in there and the smells are good, you know? Well, it's going to get even better because they are teaming up with Petco and they're going to be selling Petco items in the stores and just making it a better destination so you can get all your dog and cat related stuff as well as your saws and your paints. Oh, I wonder if Petco's going to start adopting through Lowe's. Oh, that would be, that would make sense. Yeah, yeah. they want a little adoption satellite there at their <laughs> well, Lowe's. Well, you know, they want to sell more products and have people buy as much as they can once they enter your store. It's a trend that's happening in the retail market to just make it easier to get all your stuff wherever you are. We'll see how that goes. This is an important story. Five fishermen from Maine and one from New Hampshire, along with the corporation that employs them, were charged on a 35-count indictment, a federal indictment, for illegally catching and selling huge amounts, 2.6 million pounds of Atlantic herring, the fish, over the course of the past few years. And what they did was fail to report uh, their catch to NOAA, which is the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration. That's the agency that oversees uh, fisheries and makes sure there's not, quote-unquote, overfishing. Well, they were seriously overfishing. They didn't report it, and they are probably in a big heap of trouble right now. Wow. And um, 
Laura, you think this is an isolated incident? Just a couple of rogue? Oh, you better believe it's not. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm glad they found them. Hope and Well, we'll see what happens, right? Innocent until proven guilty. But they are in hot water, let's say. It's a no-no. Okay? No. It's a no-no. So no. this, oh, you know, I don't want to talk about whether all fishing is overfishing or, but, you know, that's a term, overfishing, and you, very least, you want to keep things sustainable. We don't partake. We don't think anything should be really taken from the sea, but you've got to allow the schools to to live. Oceans are suffering. Okay, Lori, that's all I got for you now, okay? Thanks, Peter. Okay, more after the break. Rita, you look upset. I am, and I'm not sure what to do. My neighbor's dog is tied up outside. He looks very skinny and sick, and I never see food or clean water given to him. You need to report this right away. What do you mean? You should call Animal Services or the police and tell them about the abused and neglected dog. They can help to make sure the dog is properly taken care of. Okay, I can't stand to watch him suffer anymore. What's the number? Even though most of us take good care of our pets, not everyone treats dogs and cats with the care and compassion they need to be safe and healthy. If you see that a dog or cat is not being treated properly, report it to animal services or the police right away. Pets need food and clean water and protection from extreme weather. You can make the difference and you don't have to give your name. Help stop pet abuse and neglect. Be their voice. Make the call. This message is brought to you by Advancing the Interests of Animals. Visit them at AIanimals.org. That's AIanimals.org. Welcome back to Animals Today. There's this phrase you sometimes hear, doggy dementia, which is an everyday term for cognitive dysfunction syndrome in dogs. But what does it really mean, and how is dementia in dogs diagnosed? And can it be prevented or treated? To find out more about dementia in dogs, I'm very pleased to welcome board-certified neurologist Stephen Hansen, who runs the Veterinary Neurology Center in Palm Desert, California. Welcome to the program, Dr. Hansen. Hi, thanks for having me. So, Stephen, doggy dementia, there, this is a real entity, different from just a dog getting older, correct? Right. It's not, um, it's not really a normal aging change. It's more consistent with, like, Alzheimer's and people. There are a lot of similarities between the two conditions. And how common is it? Well, some estimates say about 50% of dogs over the year, uh, over the age of 11, can show some signs of cognitive dysfunction syndrome. And then once a dog reaches 15 to 16 years old, the percentage of incidence goes up to about 68%. So a fair, fair number of dogs that get to that age will show some symptoms of cognitive dysfunction. And what are the symptoms? And especially, what are the early symptoms we can look out for? Yeah, the early symptoms can be kind of hard to detect because, um, you know, sometimes it's hard to tell if a dog is really disoriented or not. Definitely when it becomes more advanced, you'll see things like a dog getting lost in the house or not recognizing people they normally would recognize. Um, Oftentimes, they also have 
disruption of their sleep-wake cycle. So they may sleep all day and then be up wandering aimlessly around the house at night. Uh, Sometimes they'll lose house training. And then occasionally a dog with dementia will have some anxiety and be a little bit agitated. Mm. It can start as early as about seven years of age, although with most dogs it uh, starts much later. Stephen, are there other degenerative diseases that cause cognitive decline in younger dogs? Well, just about anything that affects the brain can create symptoms that mimic cognitive dysfunction. So things like a brain tumor, an infection in the brain, um, immune disease in the brain, those can cause disorientation, um, behavioral changes that can look like cognitive dysfunction. But definitely, if a dog younger than seven were to show symptoms like that, uh, we would really want to um, do some tests to rule out other things. And how about aggression? Can that develop? It's unlikely that cognitive dysfunction syndrome is going to turn a placid dog into an aggressive dog. However, they can be more easily startled. And oftentimes, dogs with cognitive dysfunction also are losing their hearing, maybe their vision isn't the best, and so um, they can be startled, and they may be a little more prone to snap. So I think that some caution has to be exercised around a dog like that, but it's unlikely that they're going to start aggressively uh, you know, going after people. How do you diagnose the condition? It's mainly diagnosed off of the history, you know, having symptoms consistent with cognitive dysfunction. Um, But a really important part of diagnosing it is to rule out other things that can cause similar problems or similar symptoms. So a good examination by a veterinarian is really important and maybe also some lab work because other diseases like liver dysfunction can make a dog disoriented. Sometimes dogs with eye problems can have visual deficits where they look disoriented. And then also dogs with um, painful conditions like degenerative joint disease, they may be more reclusive and less interactive with people. So if an underlying disease like that can be identified and treated, um, you know, maybe the dog can be restored back to a normal level of function and uh, be a happy pet again. If medical conditions are ruled out, then it really takes an MRI to diagnose canine cognitive dysfunction. Because like I mentioned, things like a brain tumor can really mimic the symptoms of cognitive dysfunction. So um, that might be treated with a variety of uh, means. Um, And there are things that we can see on an MRI that would be very indicative of the brain degeneration that we see with cognitive dysfunction syndrome. Are there breeds of dogs more susceptible to getting doggy dementia? There's really no breed predisposition. It can happen in small dogs and large dogs. Um, both sexes are affected, so there's, uh, there's no way to select for a dog to avoid uh, cognitive dysfunction. And no research showing mixed breeds might be less likely to get it? No, because it's not fully understood how the disease develops. You know, there are certain um, parts of the pathophysiology that have been worked out, like there's free radical 
um, production and there's uh, deposition of a neurotoxic protein called beta amyloid. But we don't really understand why dogs, why some dogs develop beta amyloid more quickly than others. There may be some sort of genetic predisposition, but at this point we don't really know. And Stephen, describe how this disease progresses. Uh, the end stages of dementia in people are pretty horrible. Yeah, unfortunately, it can be pretty sad as a dog really loses interaction with the family. Um, they may spend more time sleeping, and eventually they may stop eating and drinking. So you know, that can produce all sorts of other serious symptoms. Discuss treatment of dementia in dogs. Yeah, there are basically three things that can be done to address dementia and slow its progression. Unfortunately, there's nothing to be done to cure it, but it, it can be slowed. And one of the ways that can be done is just with environmental enrichment. So, you know, new toys, regular exercise, a lot of interaction, um, that sort of thing can improve the mental function. So a dog that really has no stimulation is more likely to have more rapidly progressive dementia. Then there's some nutritional things that can be done. Uh, certain supplements like antioxidants, omega-3 fatty acids, um, ginkgo biloba has been looked at. Those things might slow the progression. And in fact, there are a couple of uh, food companies that have made special diets, like there's Hills BD, um, which has these sort of antioxidants in it that may slow the progression of dementia. And these things, and then the third, yeah, oh, go ahead, please. Uh, the third way is with medication. Unfortunately, there really is no medication that is consistently effective. Um, there's a medication called Anapril, also known as Selegiline or Eldepronil, and that's been uh, approved for use in dogs to treat cognitive dysfunction. In testing of that drug, about 69% of dogs treated with it showed some improvement in their mental function. Interestingly, the placebo group in that study had about a 52% improvement just with the placebo. So it's hard to know for sure how much that drug works. The other thing that we know uh, Anapril does is it causes more stimulation, both Anapril and its metabolites, which are amphetamine and methamphetamine, can just cause more arousal. So sometimes those dogs may be alert, they may be more active. It doesn't necessarily mean they're uh, you know, having better mental function. Dr. Hansen, is there any evidence that dementia in dogs can be prevented or delayed in any way by enriching the lives or diets of dogs, like the things that you mentioned that could slow the progression of the disease? Is there anything we can do to prevent the disease? Yeah, I think intuitively, based on what we know about the pathology, things like enrichment, good healthy diets, you know, all-around vitamin supplements, those things make a lot of sense. I don't think there have been any long-term studies to look at dogs, um, you know, who had substandard diets compared to dogs with good diets and how that change the outcome and increased uh, prevalence of dementia. But I think that it makes sense that having a lot of interaction, 
um, an active lifestyle, a lot of um, engagement with people and other animals is healthy for a dog's mental function its whole life. Dr. Stephen Hansen, thank you for appearing on Animals Today. Oh, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Today's Animals Today Minute is about three of the largest birds on Earth. Did you know that the ostrich is the world's largest bird? It's true. The ostrich typically weighs between 140 pounds and 350 pounds, and the adults stand six to nine feet tall. Ostriches are also the fastest two-legged animal on land. They can run up to 60 miles per hour and sustain that pace for quite a while. Commensurate with their size, the eggs of ostriches are the largest of all bird eggs, weighing about three pounds each and measuring six inches long. Their huge eyes, about two inches across, are the largest of any land animal, but also larger than their own brains. They allow the detection of slight movements of potential predators from great distances. Their relatives are cassowaries, emus, kiwis, and rheas. The wandering albatross, or the snowy albatross, is the largest living flying bird. It has the largest wingspan of any bird, exceeding 11 feet in some individuals. They fly distances of up to 75,000 miles in a single year, adding up to 15 million miles over one's life. That's some serious mileage. An adult male weighs up to 25 pounds. The wandering albatross employs a flight technique called dynamic soaring to conserve calories and harness the wind's energy to soar beautifully above open waters. And they have a special gland located above their nasal passages, which allows them to regulate their body's salt balance by excreting a concentrated saline solution from it. Recently, their numbers have been rapidly declining, putting them on the red list for conservation status. The emperor penguin is the largest and heaviest species of penguin and is native to Antarctica. They weigh up to 100 pounds and stand 45 inches in height. Like all penguins, they are flightless. Their bodies are exquisitely hydrodynamic and they have strong flippers, both of which make them excellent swimmers. They can swim up to speeds of 12 miles per hour. Emperor penguins can also dive deeper than any other bird and they can hold their breath for more than 20 minutes. The emperor penguins share their labor when it comes to preparing for the young, with the male taking care of newly laid eggs. During that time, male penguins eat nothing for more than two months. The females search for food in the open oceans, collect it in their bellies, and regurgitate the swallowed food for the newly hatched chicks. Emperor penguins all look virtually identical, which makes individual recognition very difficult. To overcome this, emperor penguins have evolved different sounding voices and the ability to recognize the unique voices of their mates or chicks. And that's your Animals Today Minute for today. We're going to talk about famous dogs in Hollywood history. Peter, who would you say is not only one of the most famous canine movie stars in history, but the most famous and recognized German Shepherd dog of all time. Oh, the German Shepherd part helps. That's Rin Tin Tin, right? That's right. During his life, Rin Tin Tin appeared in 27 Hollywood films, including one called The Man from Hell's River, that was in 1922, Frozen River in 1929, and The Lightning Warrior in 1931. Now, you're going to find Rin Tin Tin's personal story very interesting. He was rescued from a World War I battlefield by an American soldier, Lee Duncan, who nicknamed him Rinty. Apparently, he was the only one who ended up surviving from a bombed-out dog kennel in France during the war. 
Now, according to a rumor, Rin Tin Tin received more votes in the first year of the Oscars than any other actor. That's funny. But the Academy gave the award to a human to avoid being embarrassed. Warner Brothers referred to Rin Tin Tin as the mortgage lifter and fully understood their success was because of this German Shepherd dog. And this dog was one of the reasons why German Shepherds became so popular as family pets in the United States at that time. Now, after Rin Tin Tin died in 1932, many dogs after him went on to take Rin Tin Tin's name and try to continue his legacy in films, television, and books. So the Rin Tin Tin used for the 1950s television series, The Adventures of Rin Tin Tin, was not the original Rin Tin Tin. Another iconic Hollywood canine, you know Toto in The Wizard of Oz, yep. but I bet you don't know Toto's real name. No, I don't. Terry. Terry. Terry was a Karen Terrier. She was born in the midst of the Great Depression. Although Wizard of Oz, which was in 1939, was Terry's most famous role, she actually starred in 16 different movies in her lifetime. She also appeared alongside Shirley Temple in Bright Eyes as the character named Rags, that was in 1934, which was considered her first major film appearance. Reportedly, Terry did all her own stunts and almost lost her life during the filming of The Wizard of Oz. And this story, one of the winky guards, remember them? They're the Wicked Witch of the West's foot soldiers from The Wizard of Oz. Okay, I remember. One of the winky guards accidentally stepped on Toto's foot, breaking it. Toto spent two weeks recuperating at Judy Garland's residence. Garland developed a very close attachment to Toto and wanted to adopt Toto. But the owner and trainer of Toto, Carl Spitz, refused to give her to Judy Garland. Terry, Toto, died at age 11 in Hollywood in 1945 and was buried at Spitz's Ranch in Studio City, Los Angeles. The grave was destroyed during the construction of the Ventura Freeway in 1958. But in 2011, a memorial was created for her at the Hollywood Forever Cemetery in Los Angeles. Nice. Next, who's the most famous collie in Hollywood? That would be Lassie. Very good. A true American icon, right? You know Lassie's real name? Pal. Pal starred in seven different Lassie films and portrayed Lassie in the two pilot episodes of the television series before he had to retire in 1954. Pal was the first of many to portray Lassie and was father to the dogs that would continue to portray Lassie later in the television series. The Saturday Evening Post was quoted as saying that Pal had the most spectacular canine career in film history. Peter, you're old enough to remember the movie Benji. Uh, yeah, another little dog. Yep. He was a mixed breed terrier. Benji's real name was... Uh, Benjamin. Higgins. Higgins. Good guess. In 1960, animal trainer Frank Inn found the dog at the Burbank Animal Shelter as a puppy. In the movie, Benji is a stray dog looking for a home, and when two kids are kidnapped, Benji helps bring the children back to safety. Higgins, a dog trainer, considered this canine film star to be the smartest dog he had ever worked with because he was able to train Higgins to convey a multitude of emotions through facial expressions only. Higgins played in films during the 1960s and 70s, but most famous for his role in the movie Benji. And he played in six of the seven seasons of the TV sitcom Petticoat Junction. Remember that oh, one? That, no, that's a connection I <laughs> never made. Petticoat Junction. He also had a guest appearance on the Beverly Hillbillies and Green Acres. Oh, that's good. He's got the whole trifecta of that little genre there. That's <laughs> right? good. Boy, we're really aging ourselves. Do you remember watching those shows? Vaguely. It was a long time ago. I was alive, though. Green Acres. <laughs> I know, Green Acres. <laughs> you are my wife. 
Goodbye, city life. <laughs> That's funny. See, you're old enough, too. Okay. <laughs> enough singing. But listen to this. When he played in the movie Benji, Higgins was 14 years old. Oh, boy. Higgins died at age 17 in 1975. A couple famous chihuahuas. Yeah, Taco Bell. Very good. What was his name? Gidget. Oh, yeah. Was an advertising figure and mascot for the Taco Bell restaurant chain from September 1997 to July 2000. Gidget also appeared on a commercial for Geico. Uh, Before the gecko, maybe. That's right. The other famous chihuahua, you want to guess? Oh, no. You know this one. I do. Uh, There's a chihuahua. Go ahead. A chihuahua named Bruiser. Oh, yeah. Who played Elwood's faithful companion in Illegally Blonde movies. Yeah, I remember Bruiser. Bruiser's real name was Mooney. (laughs) Elwood dressed Bruiser up in pink. Do you think Bruiser minded that? Bruiser could pull it off. By the way, going back to Gidget, Gidget played Bruiser's mom in Legally Blonde. Wow, the Taco Bell Gidget? Yeah, played Bruiser's mom in Legally Blonde. I forgot there were multiple chihuahuas (laughs) in Legally Blonde. These two chihuahuas, Mooney and Gidget, lived together. Mooney died March 2016 in Los Angeles at the age of 18. Gidget was euthanized at the age of 15 after suffering from a stroke at her owner's home. You know, it's better to have animals and cartoons as uh, spokes figures these days. I agree. Because, you know, the people, they tend to get in trouble. They get arrested. There's scandals. Your whole campaign is ruined. So you want to invent something or just get a, get a dog. That's a great point. How about the famous pit bull with the circle around one eye? Yep. Petey from Petey. Our, our gang. Blue and Rascals. Very good. That was during the 1930s. Now, the original Petey, his name was Pal the Wonder Dog and was an American pit bull terrier. And he had a natural ring almost completely around the right eye and dye was used to complete the circle. Now, on Wikipedia, you can see a great famous picture of the dog, Petey the pup, sitting in between two of the characters. One was the boy who played Stymie and the other boy, Wheezy. Do you remember those characters? Yes. <laughs> this was in the R Gang Comedy School out and the picture was dated 1930. When Pal the Wonder Dog died, his son named Pete took over the role. Producers decided to continue the tradition of drawing on the entire circle, a custom that would continue in every future remake of The Little Rascals. Remember Old Yeller? Not so much. Tell me about Old Yeller. Oh, I can't believe you don't remember Old Yeller. Spike was his name. He was a yellow lab mix and best known for his performance as Old Yeller in the 1957 Disney film Old Yeller. Spike was obtained as a puppy from the Van Nuys Animal Shelter in California. The movie Old Yeller tells the story of a stray dog and a young boy who sees potential in him. Gradually, he learns the love of a family, and this dog is protecting them from all sorts of danger and risking his life for them time after time. Do you know how Old Yeller died in the movie? Yeah, I knew there was a sad part of Oh my God, it's the saddest (laughs) scene in film history. (laughs) Old Yeller defends the family against their rabid wolf. And during the fight, Old Yeller is bitten and injured by the wolf. And because of Old Yeller's exposure to rabies, the older son is forced to shoot and kill Old Old Yeller. You don't remember that scene? I, I can't believe my parents allowed me to watch that movie. My parents loved me. They did not allow me to see it. Well, maybe that's why I turned out the way I am. I'm going to stop here because thinking about what happened to Old Yeller is making me too sad. Okay, Lori. And thank you for tuning in to Animals Today. This is Dr. Lori Kirshner encouraging you to nurture your love and compassion for the only other beings sharing our planet, the animals. Mm-hmm.